and welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, the new president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. If you tuned in for Tuesday's program, you'll know how thrilled I am to be joining this council team. And I'm greatly looking forward to meeting all of you in person when it's safe to do so. Our program tonight is part of the 2021 Baylor Global Business Forum and features Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist in com conversation with Austin Goolsby, professor of economics at the University of Chicago. I look forward to listening to these brilliant economic minds break down our most pressing policy issues and discuss Krugman's book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. Please remember to purchase a copy of Arguing with Zombies, now out in paper book. What you see behind me is actually the hard copy book and what you see on screen is the paperback copy. Our audience receives a 10% discount from our partners at Interabang Books in the online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember that discount good code is good for anything in your shopping cart, not just Arguing with Zombies. We have a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. The next program in the Baylor Global Business Forum series will take place on Thursday, March 11th at 6 p.m. Central, which will be Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of International Intelligence, and we will have Daryl West. Vice President and Director of Governor Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. And now join me in recognizing Baylor University for its continued partnership and support of this series. Here is Steve Gardner, Professor and Director of the McBride Center for International Business at Baylor, who will introduce our guests. Thank you once uh, again. Thank you, Liz. Uh, and let me just say, this is our first uh, Baylor event with Liz, and so I want to uh, welcome her to the World Affairs Council, to this relationship with Baylor. Uh, some of you already know that Liz moved recently uh, to, to Dallas from Washington, D.C., where previously she was Chief Operating Officer for the World Affairs Council of America. Uh, the umbrella group that the the Dallas World Affairs Council is uh, affiliated with. And so she came with a, a wealth of experience, of international experience in the public and private not-for-profit sectors. And so those of us who've had relationships with the World Affairs Council for more than 30 years are happy to know that it continues to be in really good hands. Uh, also, uh, Liz mentioned that our, our next uh, session will be the one with Daryl West. Those of you who were signed up for the session with Ayman al-Safadi, the Foreign Minister of Jordan, should note that the schedule has shifted on that one. So he will now be coming on March 17. There was a, a change in the Foreign Minister's travel schedule that made it necessary to, to reschedule that one. So if you've already registered, you shouldn't have to make any changes, just take take note of the change in date. And uh, so that one's at 10 o'clock in the morning where the uh, the session with Daryl West about artificial intelligence will be at the same time at uh, six o'clock in the evening. Uh, 
Well, so without any further ado, uh, these are two people who really require no introduction. They're both very well known to the national audience and to uh, to the, the people who would be in participation here. Uh, Paul Krugman has already has been mentioned. He's uh, he's a distinguished professor at City uh, University of New York and the in the graduate program there. Also a uh, uh, professor Emeritus of Princeton University, uh, author of, what, 50 or more books, uh, author or, pub or editor of those, plus hundreds of academic articles, uh, well known to the general audience uh, because of his plain spoken and sometimes uh, slightly controversial uh, articles in, in the New York Times. Uh, he uh, early in his career was uh, as an economist. I noticed these things. He was he was recognized with the John Bates uh, Clark Memorial uh, Award in economics, which is the the award given to an economist under the age of forty who's made the most uh, important recent contribution in the field. And then in two thousand eight, he was the sole recipient of the Nobel Memorial Prize in economics uh, for his contributions primarily uh, among other things to international trade theory. So uh, we're just pleased and honored to have uh, uh, Paul Krugman with us tonight. He'll be in conversation with Austin Goolsby, who is also a, a familiar name in this country now. He's, uh, uh, as you can see on the wall behind him, a, uh, a faculty member of the, of the Booth uh, Business School at the University of Chicago. Uh, but also served as uh, chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors uh, during the Obama days. Uh, what the audience here might be interested to know is that Austin was born in Waco, Texas. Both of his parents and many of his relatives uh, attended Baylor. Uh, what I haven't had a chance to talk to Austin about is that I've also seen that his parents played an, early, uh, an important role back in the early 60s in bringing about racial integration in Waco, Texas. And so uh, uh, it was just he, he, the, uh, as they say, the acorn did not fall very far from the tree in terms of the, the service that he's provided. So uh, with, with just that, I want to uh, welcome Paul Krugman, Austin Goolsby, and all of you who are here this evening for what I know will be a really interesting conversation. Thank you all for being here. It's a great pleasure to be here. Professor Gardner took my, uh, stole my, my line. I was going to say my mom met my dad as students at Baylor, my uncle Kirby, my uncle Bob, my aunt Trina, my aunt Dinah all went to Baylor. I got two cousins went to Baylor and I was born in Hillcrest Baptist Hospital. So none of you is going to out Waco me, but it is still a great personal pleasure for me to, to ask Paul Krugman questions when I was a starving graduate student. I arrived at MIT and the person that gave me my first job as a student was a young professor named Paul Krugman. And uh, he has gone on to greater uh, things in both academics and politics. And his new book just came out in paperback and is about economics, politics, and the fight for the future. So Paul, start us off. Let's think about economics. Is the economy going well? The GDP growth is forecast to be some large number that we haven't seen in decades, and we're coming back from this shock. 
or is the economy bad and re requires big relief packages and things like that? Where, where do you come down? Um, the answer to the question is actually yes. Uh, I mean, it, we're, where we are now is still quite miserable. I mean, we're still, it's not a conventional recession. We're still a, a very much pandemic depressed economy with a lot of people out of work because it's not safe to do a lot of things. So we're still very much depressed and, and we will be in that situation for a number of months yet. You know, the uh, vaccinations are accelerating. We have hopes that we'll be able to start living something like our old lives late this year but it's not going to be any time, you know, it's not going to be right away. In the meantime, people, many people have no, have no jobs, no incomes. Many businesses have no business. Um, lots of state and local governments are in you know, deep financial straits. So you, you really need a, uh, we, the economy needs a lot of help right now. You need a lot of, it's not even so much, not stimulus. It's just about uh, it's disaster relief. It's getting us through a very difficult period. But if you look past that, then yeah, I'm a big optimist. I think that the this is not like the aftermath of the last financial crisis when you had a huge overhang of, of debt and a whole bunch of things that were going to hold the economy back without extraordinary effort. If we supply enough support to get people through these next six, seven, eight difficult months, then yeah, we're, we are probably looking at you know, morning in America type extremely rapid growth for a little while. And does that make you, if you look at say the Biden relief package, yeah. you, you had a very public debate with Larry Summers right. where Summers is saying the relief package is bigger than what he calculates the hole in the economy is. So he feared it'd be inflationary. Yeah. You said it's not really stimulus. It probably wouldn't be inflationary. Would your view change if the relief package turned into something permanent? Oh, yeah. I would not going to be. I mean, this is an enormous relief package. Even those of us who think we need one have to admit this is this is huge. This this is on the scale of, you know, this is roughly speaking, we're spending as much as a share of GDP as we did to fight the Korean War. We're spending sort of half as much as a share of GDP as we did uh, during America's fairly brief entry into World War I. So this is a gigantic package. Um, it is mostly called for because the stress on the American public is enormous, uh, but it's not something we're going to want to do year after year. There are pieces of it that I hope will be permanent. I'm, uh, child uh, child uh, cash allowances uh, should, should be there. Uh, enhanced subsidies for, uh, for healthcare should become permanent, but no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be sending people $2,000 checks every year from now on. We shouldn't, be, uh, we shouldn't be aiding state and local governments on this scale from now on. So this is a one time, this is a, you know, this is a big one time thing to get us through a very difficult period. Basically we're fighting a war on, on a pandemic and we need to, to win that war, but then return mostly to business as usual afterwards. And we, we already got started getting some questions. We got one from Robert. How are we going to service the national debt if interest rates start to increase? Do okay. you have fears of this rescue package, relief package, or build back better, or many of the things that you've said are important investments to make, how much should people be nervous about the debt? Very, very little. I mean, that's one of the revelations. So yeah, interest rates have ticked up a bit and will probably tick up a bit more as, 
as the economy strengthens, although let me try not to forget, I want to come back to why I don't think they're going to stay very high. But the um, but you know, right now, so today in the markets, interest rates went up uh, significantly, stocks went down because the people thought, oh, money is going to be more expensive. It was funny, it was economic optimism. People got more optimistic about recovery, and that led to belief that uh, that interest rates will be higher sometime in the uh, not too distant future. Um, but even now, the interest rate, the, the real interest rate, the interest rate on inflation protected bonds is negative. So in terms of actual you know, cost of servicing the debt properly measured, it's still less than nothing. Um, and the, in terms of the sustainability of debt, I'm trying not to get too wonkish here, but uh, you, you get it. But the honestly, you know, what matters if you're worried about debt snowballing, where paying interest on the debt means that the debt gets even bigger and then the debt, you know, sort of just goes on and on and uh, becomes impossible. That only happens if the interest rate you pay on debt is higher than the growth rate of the economy. And we're nowhere close to that. We have an economy that uh, in dollar terms can probably be expected to grow at three and a half or 4% a year for the foreseeable future. And we have an interest rate that's maybe one and a half percent. So we're nowhere close to, to where debt becomes a concern. And meanwhile, interest payments, uh, which is are themselves an exaggerated measure of the true burden of the debt are actually near a historic low. You know, the interest payments as a share of the federal budget are half what they were under Ronald Reagan. So the idea that the debt is a, is a is, and actually this, this bears on everything else. The debt is just not a, a frontline issue now, and it's not an important constraint on policy right now. And so if you are thinking about it moving more into the politics, if the next bill to come is, is infrastructure, yeah. should, does that logic say they don't need to pay for it? You know, we'll put quotes around pay for it with higher taxes, if it helped to get the bill through not to raise taxes, would you be for that? Or yeah, would you actually, think, hey, let's let's set it up to, to be paid for? No, I, I think I mean, it depends partly on how big it's going to be. You know, there are things that you can't do. Even, even those of us who are pretty relaxed about debt and deficits, you know, see limits. So Medicare for all is not something, if we ever get to that point, that's not something we can do without taxes. But spending an extra... 2% of GDP on public investment, infrastructure, but also things that are more like human investment of various kinds. Um, that's something that I don't think we need to worry about paying for it. There is a concern. I mean, there's an interesting. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Question. I, you know, when Larry and I, Larry Summers, as people might know, Larry Summers and I have known each other basically since, you know, since we were in our 20s. And, uh, um, and I always take what he says seriously, but Larry is concerned that because this relief package is going to be a, a lot of demand, it's going to be pushing the economy, it's going to lead to a lot of strong growth, that it will be competing with infrastructure spending. But I think given the timing, that's not an issue. We're going to have a boom, I think, 
a pretty good chance we're going to have a boom in the next year, driven in part by all of this uh, relief spending. Uh, we're not going to be, a, a major infrastructure program is not going to start until quite a bit after that. Even if legislation takes place uh, you know, late this year or sometime next year, the big spending will come further down the pike, which means that whatever spending boost is coming out of the current package is going to be in the rearview mirror by then. And so these are really not competing things. And then in terms of the politics, I think the, a successful economic program now is actually the best advertisement for future spending programs to do good things down, down the road. So in the book, the, you, you, there's, a, there's an essay kind of an opening where you give some principles about the, the writing of your columns yeah. and what to write about. And part of that is relates to the, one of the uh, questions from Thomas Davies. He watched your master class on economics and you, you say that, uh, that part of economics is really about good storytelling. Uh, and he's asking, well, how do you come up with the stories? In the, in the book, you kind of outline, here's your, here's your guideposts. And several of your lessons, I guess I would say, are a little confrontational. Yeah. They're, they're the, the, let's take it to the bad guys and, and, uh, and show them that they're wrong. Is that productive? Do you, is that what the administration should do, do you think? Or, or is that advice to, to columnists? Well, it's mostly it's advice to columnists. I'm writing you know, rules for punditry, right? And so, and there are different kinds of punditry. So um, there are times to be technocratic and there are times to be, uh, to, to, be uh, to soft pedal what you know to be the truth. But the reality, so this is, you know, why zombies? Why am I talking about zombies? Uh, it was actually, that was a fortuitous discovery on my part. I was working, I had noticed once I began writing columns regularly that although there were some real economic arguments out there, most of the arguments were not between good faith positions that were at least defensible on some intellectual grounds. Mostly the, the other side of the argument was clearly false. It was something that people sort of had to know was false. Um, but they just kept on saying it anyway, and it didn't matter how many times you thought the argument had been knocked down, it just kept on coming back, like the idea that tax cuts pay for themselves. Um, and I ran across a paper that was about uh, myths about Canadian healthcare, of all things, and used the phrase zombie ideas. Now, a zombie idea is something where you think you've killed it, but it just keeps shambling along, eating people's brains. And if you're, in the, if you're actually arguing against zombie ideas, which is a lot of what you have to do, given my, you know, my, my, uh, my, my journalistic job. Uh, you're not being honest with the readers if you pretend that they aren't zombie ideas. You're not being honest if you pretend that this is in fact a serious discussion. So, you know, so there's something like, it, you know, is the Biden economic plan too big? That is, I have to say, I feel like I've got, taken a vacation in Camelot because we're having a real discussion with serious people, you know, arguing with Olivier Blanchard or Larry Summers is like, hey, this is what this is what I originally signed up for when I became an economist. Um, but mostly, that's not what happens. Mostly, you're arguing with with people who are uh, who are who are not operating in good faith, and uh, I, I don't think it's fair to the readers to pretend otherwise. So, in in that kind of political environment, 
um, we got we got some questions and one of the sections of the book is about taxes and do tax cuts pay for themselves, which the evidence says they do not. Um, what would you do now in for tax policy? What does it mean that we should raise rates, broaden the base, go after corporate, go back after corporations, after high income people? Would you wait until the economy is better in, in some sense before doing that? Or how, how, do, yeah. how do you think about that? I'm, I'm, I mean, I would want to raise top end taxes of various kinds. I mean, and, and there are, you want to raise, um, uh, we, it's pretty clear that, that taxes on people of you know, high income people, even on myself, are too low. Um, I'm not a high income person by the standards of what makes high income in America now, but, but still, even, even a well-paid professional should be paying somewhat more in taxes. And, 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 and the reasons for doing that are partly because even deficits are okay up to a point, but that point's not unlimited. So we do need the money. And also as a way of reducing inequality by constraining the accumulation of wealth at the top. Um, there's no rush about it. And in the middle of an economic crisis is probably not the time to, to do that. But, and you know, politics of course can be diff, uh, difficult, but sure. I mean, in, in the end, um, the, we, uh, we, this country has done fine uh, under you know, top tax rates as high as 90% under that raving socialist Dwight Eisenhower. Now I'm not really advocating that because I think the tax evasion becomes too, too big an issue at those levels, but, but higher than where we are now makes extremely good sense. And, um, and, and I, there are real technical issues involving you know, wealth taxation, uh, things like that, which is, but something like that, something that constrains great wealth is also clearly a good idea, although the mechanics need to be thought through very carefully. And so Alana has a question that a, that a bunch of people uh, clicked that they, that they wanted to see as well, which is, in addition to taxes, there's a whole discussion about the minimum wage. Yeah. And should it go to $15? If it went to $15, should that be true everywhere in the country? Should they do that now? What's, what's your view of the national minimum wage conversation? Yeah, this is, minimum wages. So that's so funny. That's a two-part story, which of course you know, but the audience doesn't. Um, I cannot think of any other area in economics where evidence has done so much to change people's minds, including my own mind. If you go back 25 years, I believed in the sort of standard econ 101 orthodoxy that said, well, minimum wage raises the cost of labor that has to reduce the demand for labor and therefore it's really problematic in terms of employment. Um, but it turns out and pioneering work uh, by Cardin Kruger and then much more work since then, we get a lot of natural experiments because every state, well, not every state, many states have their own minimum wage considerably higher than the national minimum wage and we get to see what happens when a state raises its minimum wage and neighboring states do not. And so we get a lot more clean evidence on what minimum wages do than you do on most things in economics. And the evidence clearly says that the effects on employment are minimal. 
and that therefore there's a lot to be said for a higher minimum wage. It's, it does raise people's incomes, it reduces poverty, it has a kind of cascading effect. It's not just the people receiving the minimum who gain, but people who are making somewhat more than it also gain. Um, and the employment costs within the range that we've seen in the United States uh, are, just, are just minimal. Now, that's, there is a geographic issue, um, clearly. There's absolutely no problem with a minimum wage of $15 in New York or California. Um, there's becomes more of an issue in Mississippi or Alabama uh, and uh, a national minimum wage of $15. It's not unreasonable to have a little, to, to worry a little bit about employment effects. However, um, two things, one, Alan Kruger, uh, the late Alan Kruger, uh, who pioneered a lot of this stuff, he actually, he was of the view that he was, you know, minimum wage increases look good, but there have to be a limit. And he looked hard at Puerto Rico, which is a, a low, low productivity compared with the rest of the United States, and said, surely there, there must be evidence that the minimum wage is having negative effects. And he couldn't find it, even there, even though that was a really as good a case as you were likely to find. Um, and the other is that although, yeah, there are some issues, there's also a lot to be said for just simplicity. And if we have a, if we start to make the minimum wage too, it becomes a complex formula, then you start to lose both administrative simplicity. And also, look, I mean, there, we have a, a national campaign, which I very much approve of, called the fight for 15. And if it had been the fight for 63% of the state median, it probably wouldn't have gotten as much support. So, so I'm, I'm willing to accept the, the imperfect, the fact that we might be overshooting a bit in some places in return for 15. Do you, how important do you place minimum wage or other policies with pushing back against the trends in wealth or income inequality? I think it's huge. Now, I think the, the, this doesn't, stuff like this doesn't explain how and why the, the 1% or the 0.1% have pulled away from everybody else. But if you look at the rest, I mean, there, now this is an area where I, I've been involved one way or another, and we, we, there's been a lot of economic research over the years which a lot of which started with the belief that rising inequality had to be basically something that was being driven by technology and by globalization. And the more you look at it, the less that seems to actually work as a story. And the more essentially political environment, things like the minimum wage, but also how favorable is the environment for union organizing matter. So I have a, I have a favorite example, which is truckers. You know, once upon a time, uh, back when uh, Burt Reynolds was making movies about CB radios, God, I'm showing my age. Anyway, yeah, being, being a trucker was a well-paid job, and it was a you know it was was never an easy job, but it was it was a it was a high wage job. It's now not. It's uh, real wages of truckers are down thirty percent from what they were in the 1970s. How, what happened there? The technology. You know, we don't have self-driving trucks yet. Uh, we don't have globalized trucks. You can't, you can't have your trucker, um, your truck can't be driven from China. Um, what happened was that changes in regulation and the collapse of unionization led to a drastic fall in the bargaining power of workers in that sector. And that, that's an extreme case, but something like that is a very big part of the story. If you ask what happened to that relatively equal society that I grew up in, 
Um, the biggest thing probably is political changes undermine the bargaining power of workers. And the fact that the inequality continued despite there being two Democratic presidents for eight years each interspersed yeah. with Republican presidents, does that tell us that it's impervious to policy, that it would have been even worse if it weren't for the policy or what, how do we make for that? There are, there's a question that's kind of, it's a little more loaded in, in its thing yeah. about, you know, progressive policies of the last 25 years never did it, did anything, but yeah. how, how do we, how do we reconcile policy and politics versus these underlying forces? Well, of course the reality is we had two Democratic presidents who each served for eight years, of which only the first two were with Democratic control of Congress. So the, the, the real question is, were, were Bill Clinton's first two years and Barack Obama's first two years enough to make a really big dent in the problem? Um, and um, uh, the answer is, well, you know, not, that's not a lot of time. Um, uh, also, that uh, at least... Clinton, in many ways, even though he did a lot of good things, was still in some ways living intellectually in the space that Reagan built. It was still, you know, he's saying, you know, the, the era of big government is over. Um, and Obama was not as, one of the funny things was he was not nearly as you know, a determined, a progressive as people might have expected, partly because his party wasn't there yet. Um, and Despite that, actually, one of the funny things, people don't give Obama credit for how much, in fact, he raised taxes on top incomes. Uh, people don't realize that there was actually, in the, the average federal tax rate on the top 1% by the time Obama left office was almost back to where it was before Reagan, between letting some of the Bush tax cuts expire and the extra taxes that pay for Obamacare, it was pretty significant equalizing stuff that went on. But still, the point was that it did not have, did not have the political will. Now, what's interesting now is we have this razor thin Democratic majority in Congress, but it's a very different Democratic party. This is a vastly more progressive party. I mean, just think about the fact that, that uh, you know, the, uh, uh, Senate finance chairman when un under Obama was Max Baucus and it's now Bernie Sanders, right? That's a, that's a pretty different universe. And I think there's reason to hope that a lot more can be accomplished this time around. So uh, Raymond wants to know, uh, I think it was motivated by, by our discussions of these, these were just politics uh, and they weren't legitimate economic discussions. Can economics really be separated from politics? And if not, was it ever the case that it could be separated from politics? Oh, I mean, perfection. There's no such thing as total perfection. Nobody is absolutely objective. Even, you know, uh, particle physicists aren't absolutely objective. Uh, they always have some, there's always gonna be some motivated reasoning that enters in, but you can try. It's really important that you try to, uh, to, to not go for just things just because you want them to be true. Um, actually, I'll give you an example. I, there's, a, there's a pretty big debate about whether income inequality is bad for economic growth. Um, and 
I would love to believe that. That's that really fits with where I want to be politically. But I have not been convinced by the evidence. And the reason I'm not convinced is partly there is some evidence, but I know how much I would like to believe that. And so I bend over backwards not to give in and, and do motivated reasoning. Now, once in a while, I, I fall into that trap of, of, of motivated reasoning. We all do. But you have to make an effort. So the question is, no, is there such a thing as a pure economics that's completely divorced from politics? No, of course not. But there is a big difference between economists or any kind of researchers who try to say, okay, what is really happening as opposed to what would I like to believe is happening? Okay, let's shift to second category uh, from the book, which is about international trade. And it's yeah. one that you've done lots of research on, you've opined on the politics of, and we've just gone through a, an, an unusual period where we threatened and enacted trade wars, we put in place tariffs. One of the audience asked the question, what's the role of tariffs in the modern global economy? Let's broaden it. What do you make? How, what should we think about the last four years? Did the trade wars, did we accomplish anything with the trade wars? Were they destructive? Were they irrelevant? Where, do we, yeah. where does the world trade system stand and where does the U.S. stand in it? Yeah, so the trade wars were, I mean, they were destructive. They, they uh, on balance, they probably cost, uh, cost manufacturing jobs in the United States because they, it, it's, you know, this is the old line. I'm not, I'm not all, always against war, but I'm against stupid wars. Well, I'm not always against trade wars, but I'm against stupid trade wars. And this was really a completely uh, you know, old thumbs trade war. The, the Trump administration never figured out what it was trying to accomplish or how it could use the tools. And what it did, in addition to doing some economic damage, although not huge, but some economic damage, was it also squandered credibility. The, if, if we're going to try and be effective at the international uh, uh, you know, uh, re regime, if we're going to be a, a player that people take seriously, we have to be a, a, a trusted partner. But it has to be the case that if we make a threat that, that, that people take that seriously, but it also has to be the case that if we make a promise, people take it seriously. And when you become a country that slaps national security tariffs on Canadian aluminum because of that, uh, you know, that severe threat to our national security from those militaristic Canadians, uh, then you're really squandering your position in the world and your ability to, to, to get stuff done. Now, that, that doesn't mean that... that that there were no problems with globalization and that there are no issues. We, China is a huge economy, a huge player in the world trade system that is also not a good actor. They don't respect intellectual property rights. They engage in industrial policies that pretty much, that de facto, whatever exactly you say de jure, um, cross the line. Uh, into violations of certainly the spirit of trade rules. And so we do need to have a policy of trying to uh, create incentives. Uh, uh, we, we, I want to say, I'm trying to figure out the, the original version of The Godfather. He didn't actually say an offer you can't refuse. He said, let, let us reason together. So we and the Chinese need to reason together and we need to talk to them and say, hey, you know, this is bad things will happen if you don't start to behave like the big player, the, the big boy in the world trading system you are. But in order to do that, we need to bring along 
other countries. We need to bring the European Union and the Japanese into the story. And so we need a reset, not a, uh, I mean, the kind of yay globalization, it's all great. Uh, uh, that's, that, that day has passed. It's passed, I think, for some good economic reasons and for political reasons, but it needs to be a sophisticated approach to globalization, not a, not just a, we're, we're going to strike out at, at, at everybody and, and uh, er, the whole world is our enemy because that we're just so, not big so enough it to do is, that. It sounds like you would, if they, if they called you up tomorrow and said, okay, give us the approach, what yeah. do you want to do? That is still a kind of a confrontational approach to China, just not public confrontation, maybe a little more get the allies together and behind the scenes. Yeah, I'm, I'm for, uh, yeah, modified limited hardball. Um, it's, uh, and, and by the way, that's not a, that's not a, a late minute uh, conversion. Um, back when uh, Obama was trying to negotiate uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which uh, it wasn't a, there were a lot to be said for, but there were also clearly serious risks and costs domestically. And so I came out against, softly against it. And um, uh, one of the interesting things about writing for the New York Times is that people do call to push back. And as it happened, I was visiting at Oxford at the time. And it's extremely rude to step out of an Oxford dinner party and have a long phone conversation with somebody, unless the person on the other end of the phone call is the president of the United States uh, complaining about what you just wrote. So, uh, but um, the, um, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm not definitely, and look, let's also talk political reality. Um, Republicans are just dying to find some way to portray Joe Biden as being a softball, you know, a softy on China. And so, uh, even aside from the fact, I think there's a lot of real merit in being reasonably tough with China. Also, you just can't, it has to uh, not, not be seen to be just going back to complete indifference. And do you think, so, someone asked in the, uh, in the questions about the role of the dollar as a reserve currency. Do you, if we are moving to, a, to an era in which there's not a cons global consensus about openness, and people are kind of going back behind their own fences. Is that ultimately a threat to the role of the dollar as a as a world currency? Do you think? Uh, it might be, but this is this happens to be a favorite topic of mine because the, the interesting thing about the dollar as a reserve currency issue is that uh, the people who uh, know the most about that care the least. It sounds, it sounds terribly important, King Dollar and all of that. But if you start to ask concretely, what does that mean? Does it mean that we're able to borrow money in ways that other countries can't? That's not, not at all clear. I mean, if you look, you know, Australia has been running large trade deficits since forever. And the Australian dollar is not the global reserve currency. Um, the, um, if is the United States able to borrow money more cheaply? Well, no, actually, U.S. interest rates, there are complicated reasons for it, but U.S. interest rates, although very low, are actually a bit higher than in most other advanced countries right now. Um, the main sort of financial benefit to the United States is that there are a lot of people actually holding pieces of green paper outside the United States. Most of them pieces of green paper with 
pictures of Benjamin Franklin on them. Um, and the reason they're holding that is, is for mostly for, for illicit purposes. And so the United States in effect gets an interest-free loan of, I guess it's something now like $700 billion of uh, mostly $100 bills that are sitting outside the United States. But that, an economy the size of the United States is a tiny thing. And that's not the reason to be, want, want us to be a reserve currency. So the idea that it's, that the dollar's special role in the world I mean, it's interesting and it plays, it has some advantages and disadvantages for the United States, but it, it's just not a big deal in the scheme of economic uh, affairs. And does that, does that inform you? What, what opinions do you have about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and this group of people arguing that there will be, you, you trust no government, trust no one, trust only technology? Uh, trust only technology and the firms that are supposed to hold your Bitcoin and end up stealing it. But anyway, no, uh, uh, yeah, it's um, a Bitcoin. I have to say, I've actually made um, I've made some money off Bitcoin um, because okay. I because I get invited to Bitcoin conferences to be the designated enemy, and they pay I me see. speaking fees and actual money. Uh, so that's how I make money off Bitcoin. But the um, uh, the funny thing about Bitcoin, the really and the whole thing is that it's not new anymore. We're, this is not a cutting edge thing. This has been around since I think 2009 or thereabouts um, and has yet to find any real use. People are not, they, there are only a, a tiny amount of transactions actually being done in Bitcoin and they're mostly seen to be illicit. Um, it's actually a little bit like those $100 bills sitting in Latin America. Um, and it's not, you know, not making even a, a a fingernail's worth of difference to the role of, you know, actual currency as as money, um, but it just hangs in there because people believe in it, and it's uh, I mean it's this ideal it's the sort of this ideological this combination of uh, as I say uh, techno Babylon libertarian derp that supports it, and um, um, and I don't know I mean, I mean it's it's amazing that it just keeps on hanging in there, even though no one really seems to be able to find a use for it. Uh, one of the lines I, I saw, uh, it's not original, was that this whole business with GameStop, uh, the, the big problem GameStop had is that there's an actual business there. And so people could look at the actual business and say, this stock can't possibly be worth that much. Whereas since Bitcoin has no actual use, there was nothing to tether the value, so it can go wherever. And it, so then take a step back. What do you make or what should we all make about the apparent radical divergence between the stock market and the real economy? That we oh. could have a day when they announce the economy lost 21 million jobs in a single month and the stock market went up on that day. Um, and the, just the continued unbelievable valuations when there were definitely moments over the last 12 months when it, it did not seem as optimistic as it does now. Yeah. What, what do we think of it? It's my view is that, I mean, a stock is a claim on the future earnings of a company, future earnings reaching, you know, some years into the future, because you, um, you expect companies to, to be in existence for quite a while. And particularly if you're looking at something like a, a tech stock, you're, a lot of what you expect is, is profits that will be made some years down the way when, when the technology is, is really matured. Um, so current economic conditions 
really shouldn't have very much bearing at all if you think they're temporary. So if we're in the midst of a pandemic that has deeply depressed the economy for a year and a half, that really shouldn't matter that much for a company whose value depends on its expected earnings over the next 30 years. And then uh, it's always, of course, the question on, on what, what those earnings are worth is always compared to what. And the alternative is buying a bond. And if interest rates are really low, then you kind of expect that the values of stocks that, that are based uh, primarily on earnings that we expect to take place after the pandemic is long behind us should, if anything, rise when the economy is depressed and interest rates are down. And actually, as it happens today, we kind of saw that story in reverse. Interest rates went up, on, as far as we can tell, on economic optimism. People got, uh, uh, got psyched that we really are going to have a boom. And so they think the Fed's gonna raise rates sooner than it would have otherwise. So long-term interest rates ticked up some and the stock market fell. Um, good, news, you know, good news for the economy was bad news for the stock market, which is not crazy when you think about it. Okay, another big section captured a lot of, has a lot of the pages of the book, also a lot of your attention, professional and public mm -hmm. attention have been writing about healthcare. Yeah. and thinking about healthcare in the United States. The first, the passage of Obamacare and the illegitimacy, let's call it, of the opposition that it was not rooted in, in intellectual um, thought, that it, was, that it was more political. Do you, looking forward from now, where do we go? We've just had a crisis that was a jobs crisis. And because we have a primarily employer-based healthcare system, millions of people lost their insurance in the middle of a pandemic. Does, do you think that will lead us to more radical, more progressive ideas, whether it's Medicare for all or, or some substantial expansion of the healthcare safety net? Do yeah, you think well, that we would, or do you think we would, twiddle on the margin uh, with Obamacare, expand the subsidies, expand the Medicaid I expansions, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, so what's in the, um, the, the bill that we think is going to pass uh, with 50 senators on Kamala Harris is, uh, is in fact going to be significant, uh, but, uh, but marginal, uh, a significant expansion of the extensive margin of Obamacare, increased subsidies and to the, to the income limit for subsidies, uh, liberalized rules for, for Medicaid, um, which will get us a, a number of, you know, some millions of more people will get coverage and the coverage will be improved, but it's not a radical change. Um, and the, you know, if, I, if you could start from scratch, I would definitely go for single payer. Medicare for all. That's that's the uh, that's a simple system. It's straightforward. Um, it's um, it, it, there have been cases. Taiwan created a health insurance system, you know, from scratch in 1995, uh, uh, largely created by my friends Uva Reinhardt and and Mei Chung. Uh, the um, and they uh, and they went for a single payer, but they themselves well has now passed away. But they themselves would say, okay, you can't get there from here in the United States, or you can't get there except except by a, a series of partial steps, because uh, we have 160 million people who do have employer-based coverage, and even though you can make a pretty good case that they'd be at least as well off 
under Medicare for all, that's quite a sell. You're saying to all these people, we're going to take away the coverage you have that you think is okay and replace it with something different and trust us, it'll be better. You know, that's sort of not the way politics works. So you can inch up on it. You can lower the Medicare age. You can create a public option. And as more and more people start using the public option, you're sort of uh, by stealth in a way, and the insurance companies know what's happening, but still you can, you can sort of work your way towards uh, a, a single payer system. But you, know, you do it. And by the way, Obamacare was a huge safety net during this. Millions of people lost jobs, but and there was some decline in health insurance coverage, but not nearly as bad as it might have been because, thank God, we had the ACA. Um, and uh, I, you know, this is one of those cases where the ideal is it is is the enemy of of trying to get stuff done. Uh, uh, you look across the every, every other country, every other advanced country does have some form of universal health coverage. The interesting thing is they do it in lots of different ways. There are decentralized subsidy and regulation systems that look a lot like Obamacare. There are single payer systems uh, like Canada. There are, or, or, or the one that every American over 65 lives under. Um, there are actual socialized medicine like the British National Health Service, and they all work. All of them, if, if you wanna make sure that everybody's covered, you can do it. Uh, it's probably cheapest if you do it British style with an NHS. Um, it's next cheapest if you do it with single payer. It's more expensive if you try to have a multi-payer system, but all of them are workable and we can do this. Okay, last uh, subject area that, uh, that I want us to talk about from your book and motivated by the experience in Texas of just wow. the last couple of weeks is energy, is climate, and, and you know, maybe these, the politics of this issue, um, you've got some people saying, ah, the problem was we've got too much renewable energy and that's not reliable. And you got yeah. others saying the problem was we had too much deregulation and that's why it was not reliable. A, what do you think, what's your take on what happened? Okay. B, I mean, they, do you think it motivates some, some movement on energy and climate. Yeah, the whole renewable thing is, uh, I mean, we're witnessing the birth of a new zombie here, right? This, there's absolutely no, nothing to support the idea that renewable energy was a problem. Yeah, some wind turbines froze because they weren't winterized, but lots of, lots of stuff froze. And in fact, the, the core of the problem seems to have been mostly gas-fired plants and the pipelines that serviced them. So it really had nothing to do with renewables. And, you know, there uh, probably see there are pictures of our uh, Antarctic really, uh, uh, a research station, which is powered in part by wind turbines. So if it works in Antarctica, certainly it could have worked in, in, uh, in, in West Texas if, if people had taken suitable precautions. Uh, deregulation. Now, you don't necessarily have to have a completely you know, publicly owned or uh, extremely heavily regulated energy sector. But what we learned, we, we should have learned from this horrible period in Texas is that the regulation has to be a lot more substantial than what Texas was doing. You need to impose precautionary stuff. You need to uh, require that there be reserve capacity, which companies don't have the incentive to do on their own. You need to, uh, uh, I mean, they, Texas had a, a big disruptive freeze in 2011. There were many recommendations that there should be 
increased winterization of the power grid, which were ignored. Uh, the companies didn't want to do it because it would cost them money and the regulators didn't regulate. And so you, you need to actually do that. So no, if, if let me be fair, if you're going to have an extreme weather event, there are going to be disruptions. Uh, I've been, uh, I'm currently sitting in Princeton, New Jersey, and we went through, uh, you know, a 12 day power loss after a hurricane here. Uh, but it's, it, it is clearly, it's, it, it really is a regulation issue more than it is anything else. And it, God knows it has nothing to do with renewable energy. Okay, we're coming to the end of our time, but there are a couple of uh, questions here from the audience. One, they're, they're tracking you, they're following you. Caroline says this morning on Fox 4, you talked about the zombie belief of the magic of the marketplace. Yeah. Could you elaborate on what that belief entails? Okay, so Adam Smith famously talked about the invisible hand of the marketplace, you know, directing people usually to do good things, even if they weren't intending to be good. Um, and sometimes that works, but it requires a bunch of conditions. So the idea that you could just say, oh, let's, we're gonna have a market in power and it'll be unregulated on terms of prices and don't worry about it private sector will make all the precautions to be ready for, for, for the next ice storm. Uh, well, that turns out not to be right. And it turns out to be not to be right for a bunch of reasons. Among other things, the fact that if prices spike during a, a, during a storm and people start facing multi-thousand dollar utility bills, that's just not acceptable. If, you, if, if the working of the marketplace requires that, it, if it inspires Ted Cruz to start fulminating about the evil of profiteering during a crisis, that tells you the market doesn't work. So markets are great as long as you know when to stop. So it's, it's the belief that the market always gets it right and that you never have to ask, okay, will it work under these circumstances? That's the belief in the magic of the marketplace. And uh, I guess the... Uh... The next highest one is which emerging market economy do you see making the greatest advancements over the next five years? You gods, I have no idea. I mean, China is, is of course, just is a gigantic powerhouse. And uh, every time people think that the Chinese have reached some kind of limit, uh, they blow right past it. So there's that, but there's just a lot of, I mean, what I would say is a, a better question. I mean. Different question. I think it's worth looking at the success stories that people don't know about. There are a lot of countries out there that are still desperately poor, but are far better off than they used to be. If I wanted to point to a, a huge success of globalization, I often talk about places like Bangladesh, who, you know, nobody thinks of Bangladesh as a, as a, as a role model, but Bangladesh is a place that literally was on the edge of subsistence. It was a Malthusian economy where people starved when the harvest was bad. And now it's about four times as rich as it was then. And it's, you know, it, it does it, it's, it's a sweatshop economy. As somebody said, it's not a banana republic, it's a pajama republic. It's basically selling apparel to the world, but it has meant that, that you know, a, a huge population has come off the bottom. They're not, uh, they're still a horrible standard of living by our standards, but that's progress. In a total change of, of 
topic. What is your opinion on Biden's plan to forgive student loans? Do you think this will help struggling individuals gain financial footing or does it not make much of a difference? No, I'm for it. And I'm for a bigger number. Uh, uh, I, uh, I, I, I kind of, uh, I, I'm not always in tune with Elizabeth Warren, but most of the time, and I think she's right that you want a generous number. And it actually drives me crazy when people say, oh, but think of all those Ivy League students who don't need help. For, as a practical matter, there are no Ivy League students. There are, it's a few thousand uh, lucky kids in America who get to go to elite universities. And the, 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 the rest of the, of the country is full of, of students who've taken on substantial amounts of debt, often based upon false promises of what their education would get them. Um, and often based, you know, they, we've, we've had a, a lot of problems with for-profit schools and to make a, a, to give them a chance to, to make a restart, a reboot by giving them debt forgiveness is something that I'm very much in favor of. Liz, let me ask him one more. Uh, this is not to, not to end on a, a narrow note. There's one about if technology is the economic engine for growth, who will benefit from the technology? In a, in a way, are you an optimist for the technology in the short to medium run? Are you a pessimist? Oh, I'm mostly an optimist. I think I think uh, you know as we we think of IT and and that's been the, and IT has some ambiguities, even though we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now without it. But the uh, but there's lots of other stuff. I mean the progress in renewable energy is miraculous. And you know, historic, if you take the very long view, technology has been an enormous boon for all of us. And so I think that technology will do great stuff for all of us until, uh, until then, then Skynet kills all of us. But that's, that's, a, that's a further down the pike. Okay, that's a grim optimism. Well, yeah. it's been very wide ranging and, uh, and it's been great to get an insight into, into what uh, what Paul Krugman's thinking about the economy and politics and, and everything else. Liz, do you All want right. to uh, take I'll over? Take it away. Thank you. Thank you both for a great discussion. Uh, way to go on making economics incredibly uh, interesting and an engaging conversation. So thank you. And again, I'd like to remind our viewers to pick up a copy of Paul's book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future at Interabang Books. Use code DFWWORLD for 10% off your online purchase. To catch up on our past programs, head over to our YouTube channel at DFWWORLD. And if you're not a member of the council yet, please join us. We would love to see you more and I look forward to meeting you in person. Visit DFWWORLD.org for more information on membership. Thank you and have a good evening.